The reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 54, through chapter 8, verse 3. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you very much, Ben. If you are a fourth through sixth grader, you are dismissed to your class now. You can go. And uh, good morning, Redemption. How are you? Good to be back. If you're new, I'm, I'm the guy who's normally up here, not that short guy that was here last week. So a um, couple things I just want to mention. First of all, uh, uh, Cody is um, in uh, Tucson today, I think, leading worship for Redemption Church Tucson. And we are pleased that we could have John and Katie come and, and lead with us. John and Katie uh, volunteer over at uh, Tempe, but when Cody's out, often um, John will come over here and lead. He's been doing that for us for probably the last four years, and some of you have been around a long time. You kind of get used to seeing John and Katie together. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I don't really care. Uh, I want to let you know that they're engaged now, and they've actually set a date. So that's really, yeah, see, yeah, there you go. Good job, Katie. <clears throat> So um, we are just thrilled that they're here to, uh, to help lead. Uh, a couple of other things before we get started. First of all, the week before last week, uh, Cody preached. It was my birthday, and Jackie said she wanted me to be available uh, Sunday evening. And so uh, I asked Cody to preach. She had a birthday thing planned for me and everything. And um, so Cody preached, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I suddenly realized, and, and Cody's been preaching here now for three years as well as leading uh, music, but I suddenly realized um, he does not, people say he preaches, and every time he preaches, he talks about tacos, but there's something else that he does. He, he quotes Chronicles of Narnia every time he preaches. Have you noticed that? Okay, so here you go. I just want to point out this difference, very important difference. Uh, Cody went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he quotes Chronicles of Narnia. I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, and I quote from The Godfather. So if you have... If you have children wondering which seminary to go to, that might help you understand that. Um, uh, the, other, the other thing I wanted to mention was Tom was here last week, and uh, uh, I, you, you need to understand, if you don't know, Tom and I have known each other for 26, 27 years. Uh, he and I would say Tim Keller are my two favorite Bible teachers, and Tom would be number one, and Tim uh, would be number two. I just, I've, I've, I have sat under his teaching for years and years and years, and uh, again, on Sunday, uh, I was in Iowa doing that marriage retreat, but I started getting texts right away just talking about how magnificent uh, the sermon was and how much they enjoyed uh, Tom and all of that. Uh, I do want to point out, though, Tom.
Tom preached on seven verses last week. I am preaching on 71 verses this week. This is going to, for some of you, this might be a little painful. It's going to be painful for me, too. I've been trying to figure out how to do this. But um, so one of the things that I would appreciate it if you could do, if you were here last week, um, if you could, as you leave today, think about this. Take last week's sermon and then, and then add it together with this week's sermon, and then average the two, and then mine will look better by comparison. If you could just do that for me, I, w- I would really appreciate it. Um, the reading that Ben did is the climax of this story of Stephen standing up to the religious council, the ruling council in Jerusalem, after he's been accused of blasphemy, and, and uh, he gives this very long and detailed speech in answer to their question. And at the Preaching Collective uh, a week and a half ago, when we were looking at this, all the pastors were looking at this, the question came up, are you going to read every verse during your sermon or are you just going to summarize it? And, and it was interesting because about, I would say, six or seven of the pastors said, no, I'm going to read every verse. And, and the rest of maybe three or four said, no, I'm just going to summarize. And it was interesting to have that conversation about you know, what the philosophy was behind that. I was in the camp that said, I'm going to read every verse, and I want you to know why. Um, it, it's, it's hard, I know. It, one of the worst things anybody can experience is someone else reading to them, unless it's a parent reading to a small child, okay? Uh, and I get that. But the reason I like to read the passage all the way through uh, in, in fits and starts, admittedly, but the reason I like to read it all the way through is because I want you to hear the word of God and not just my understanding of it. You're going to get my understanding of it in the midst of the sermon today, but I don't want it to be just my understanding. If nothing else today, I want you to walk out and say, I heard 71 verses of the word of God. And so that's uh, why I do that. Do this. this. This passage is all about Stephen. It's really, other than last week where he's introduced as one of the seven deacons, um, it's all about Stephen, and, and he becomes possibly the most famous martyr in the history of the church. Martyr, you've heard that word before. That word is actually a Greek word that means witness. It's tr- it, the, the literal translation of the Greek word martyr is witness. We are to bear witness to Jesus and the resurrection. That's what Christians do. But doing so will not always make you the most popular person. And therefore, we have this understanding uh, that martyr is also somebody who might be persecuted or even killed for their faith. That's where it comes from, because Stephen is killed for proclaiming in Jesus salvation. They didn't like it at all. So I'm going to do my best to walk through this passage and make some comments along the way, and then we're going to close with what, I, what I've been liking to do during this Acts series is closing with some takeaways or some things that you can uh, think about at the end. So here's the big idea, long big idea. Judaism, and therefore Christianity, predated the law, the Mosaic law, and the temple in Jerusalem, their church building. Judaism, and therefore Christianity, because Christianity grows out of Judaism, predated the law and the temple. This means that, like other religious trappings and practices, the law and the temple are expressions of our relationship with 
and salvation by God, and not the reason for nor the core of our relationship with and salvation by God. Very important to understand that. If you want a shorter version of the big idea, here it is. Be sure to keep the main thing the main thing. We have a hard time as people of faith keeping the main thing the main thing. And essentially, that's what Stephen's doing with the professional religious people here, is he's saying, you're not keeping the main thing the main thing, and you never have, and that's your problem. And Jesus is now the main thing. So let me give you a couple of little previews at what Stephen is doing in this speech. And yes, I would call this, it's a sermon, but it's more of a speech than a sermon. He's answering a question, and he's doing it somewhat academically and through uh, history. Uh, the first thing he does is he tells the council, the, the ruling council, the professional religious people, the perps, as I like to call them, that they are rejecting God by rejecting Jesus. And he's saying, but that's nothing new. You, you, you have been doing this for centuries as the people of Israel, as the leaders of God's people. You have been rejecting God for centuries and say, you will never learn, he says. And then the second Thing he's telling them is like so many other people, including us today, by the way, you are placing your faith in things that are expressions of God, but not God and not his movement in and among his people. In other words, you worship false gods. You worship idols. Now, an idol or a false god, we hear that and we think bad things, and I understand that. But we need to remember that the vast majority of false gods or idols, same thing, that you and I worship are not necessarily in and of themselves bad things. They are good things that we decide to make ultimate things, and that's what makes them bad things. We're the ones that turn them into bad things by trying to make them ultimate things. And for the Jewish religious ruling council, they had taken the temple and they had made it a false god. They had taken the nation of Israel, and they had made that a false god. They didn't understand that salvation wasn't in the nation of Israel. Their sovereignty is a nation, but rather the sovereignty of God. And they had taken the Mosaic law, and they had made that an ultimate thing, rather than turn, having the, the law turn them toward God. So let's get started. I'm going to go way back now to, verse, to chapter 6, which is where this passage actually starts. So the deacons had been appointed, and then this is the first thing that happens after the deacons get appointed to serve tables and to pray. And Stephen, who's one of the deacons, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and, and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him, Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who, who sat in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is full of grace and power. Where is he getting this grace and power from? 
It's not from physical strength or worldly knowledge or worldly wisdom. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. If there's been one thing that we have hammered from the beginning of this series, when we started Acts at the beginning of the year, it's that it is about the filling and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer of Jesus and in the life of the people of God, the church, okay? So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Stephen's the first non-apostle that we see in Scripture in the New Testament described as doing signs and wonders. But the opposition, of course, came. All these Jews who are committed to the Mosaic Law and to the temple come to oppose him. And, and if, we had to, if this were a 10-week Bible study, these 71 verses, we would stop and we would explain to you who, who all these Jews were. But just let me say this. Let me just tell you they have one thing in common. The synagogue of the freedmen, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia were various Jews from all over the known world at that time, geographically from literally hundreds and hundreds of miles away who were in Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and they all had one thing deeply in common. They were committed to the Mosaic Law and to the temple and believed that that is where they found their salvation and their righteousness before God, that it wasn't God, it was the temple and it was the law. And so this is a huge group that's opposing Stephen. And they're not happy with Stephen because just like Peter, when Peter gets up to speak, Stephen is messing with their structure, with their status, and with their source of power. If Jesus really is the Messiah, they lose their structure, their status, and their power. It's that simple. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit that were contained in Stephen. They couldn't withstand the power of the Holy Spirit in him. This is not power in self-righteousness or in passionate indignation, but rather it's power from the Holy Spirit giving Stephen the wisdom that he needs. But, but they get no traction against Stephen. And so what they do is they scheme, and they, and they use false witnesses against Stephen. Now, the false witnesses, of course, is reminiscent not only of Jesus' trial, but if, if you go through the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again, God's people would use false witnesses against God's anointed prophets who were speaking truth to the leader of, leaders of Israel. So we, this is a pattern that you see not just here with Stephen, but it's over and over and over and over in Scripture. And his crime is stated very clearly. He is blaspheming against this place and the law. He's not blaspheming God. He's blaspheming the temple and the law according to the religious leaders. Now, right out of the gate, you can see that they're off kilter there. And, 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 and this elicits a great emotional response because they had been teaching the people to worship the temple and to worship the law. So everybody who's around listening to this, it, it, it elicits a great emotional response. Here you go. It's as if somebody says... They are blaspheming the Statue of Liberty and the Constitution. And that riles people up, does it not? But, but this is what the perps have now placed their faith in. They, they don't have faith in God. They have faith in a building, which, by the way, is going to get destroyed in about 30 years by the Romans. And they've placed their faith in the law. It's not that the building or the law are bad things, but they are merely expressions of God's relationship with his people that have become objects of their worship. 
it, here you go. Uh, it, it's the person who worships their Bible, but not the God of the Bible. It, it's the person who uh, has this very special relationship with a cross, but they really don't know Jesus who hung on the cross. It, it's, it's the person who, who exalts a church, but not the head of the church. It, here, here you go. It's a person who exalts a flag, a flag, and, and it, can be, it can be an American flag, or a Mexican flag, or an Awana flag, or the Christian flag. It's really quiet in here now, and the reason is because I have these conversations all the time about the importance of flags. Why aren't there flags on our platform? Because we're not into idol worship here. I, flags are great. I got a flag. Sometimes I wear flags on my t-shirts. But I don't worship flags. You're missing the point if you start worshiping flags. Here you go. Here's another one. It's going to get even quieter. People who worship church programs. Yeah, Jesus is cool, but we need this program, okay? Programs are good. Church programs are fine. But there are people who worship at the altar of church. This is, I'm just trying to help you understand that this isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that happens today in the church when we make idols out of these things. Okay? And Jesus also taught something like what they're accusing Stephen of. He said, you know, destroy this temple, meaning him, and it'll be raised up in three days. Of course, they completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And they took him to task for it. You're going to knock down our temple? And then you're going to be able to rebuild it in three days? You're crazy. He had no idea what he was saying, but of course it happened. And he changed the customs of Moses. He instituted grace, not law. Not at the expense of the law. That's very important. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and then be able to give us the grace. Here you go. Here's the difference between religion and what Jesus teaches, the grace of God and who Jesus is. And this is a big point for some of us, okay? Religion is this. If we just keep the law, if we keep our moral code, if we live up to a particular standard, then I'm good enough for God and I will be saved. Does anybody know what that standard is, by the way? Okay, many of us in our own minds have an idea what that standard is, but we know that God says that standard is perfection, absolute perfection. How many, anybody perfect here? Yeah, I thought so. Okay, here's what Jesus says. He says, you can't keep any law, but I'm going to give you righteousness before God. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to impute my position before God, my perfect position before God, into you so that you are redeemed and you are saved. You're not good enough, but I'm good enough, Jesus says, and I give you that gift of my righteousness, my redemption, my salvation. 
That's what Christianity is. And then when the Holy Spirit fills you, then you are able to keep the law. We don't do it perfectly, obviously, because the sin, uh, the, the flesh and the spirit are still at war, as, as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Nevertheless, now we are saved. God sees us as perfect, even though we're still battling that. So that's the difference between religion and what Jesus does for us. Religion is you have to live up to something to be good enough for God. God says Jesus is perfect, and in him you have salvation and redemption. That's grace. And that is a magnificent gift. That is a magnificent gift. And that's what Stephen's teaching. So that's the setup. And just like Peter in chapter 3, Stephen is asked one simple question by the ruling council, and he responds. So verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? One simple question. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And, and after his father died, after his father died, God removed him from, where, from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. That's an important line. Not even a foot's, foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and as his offspring came after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. So here's Stephen's quick summary of Genesis chapters 12 through 36. That's, that's those several chapters in a nutshell. In verse 1, at least Stephen gets some measure of due process. They could have just executed him there. They had the right to do that. But they ask him to defend himself. And it's not a simple yes or no answer. In the process of his answer, he is going to indict these religious leaders. And he doesn't do it out of hate. Understand, Stephen is not doing this out of hate. Though what he says is very direct, he is proclaiming this out of his love for the religious leaders, wishing that they would just figure this out once for all. And his speech, this is important too, his speech is not evangelical in nature. He's not going to have an altar call at the end of this speech. He's not going to invite people to come to Jesus. He's just telling them Jesus is, and that's the way it is. And you're wrong about how you're uh, practicing your religion. Stephen tells the leaders that their reverence for the law and for the temple is completely misplaced. And it's not that the temple and the law, I'm going to say this a hundred times today, it's not that the temple and the law are bad, but that the religious leaders have misprioritized them. And his funny thing is, the irony is that his argument is rooted in history and in the Mosaic law. He's quoting from the Mosaic law, the very thing that they revere, in order to make his case that they're wrong. And here's what he's saying, Judaism... In other words, God's relationship with his people, along with his calling and his promises, notice the promise to Abraham in there, predate the nation of Israel, the giving of the law to Moses, and the building of the temple. They all pred the calling of God predates all three of those things. And the foundation of Judaism and Christianity is built on God's love for his people, not on things. 
It's built on his mercy and grace given to his people. It's built on his call to his people. It's built on his promises for his people. And it's built on the deliverance of his people. And when he says to them, hear me, it's a plea of love. He's not saying, hear me, like I'm smarter than you. He's saying, hear me. Hear, just once, hear a different perspective than your perspective. Because they're wrong. These verses refer to the beginning of the Jewish people, before a building, before a law, before a nation. And it says right in there, that's why Stephen includes, Abraham was given not one foot of inheritance. He's saying there was no nation when this happened. And yet you believe that the nation is what's important. Okay, Look at 9 through 22. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, So now we're moving into Genesis 37 through the rest of Genesis and even into the beginning of Exodus. But God was with him. God was with Joseph. And he rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in in Egypt... He sent our fathers on their first visit. This is Joseph's brothers who had sold him into slavery. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family came to know Pharaoh, became known to Pharaoh. This is a great story, by the way. Read Genesis 37 through 50. It's amazing. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had, sought, had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and she- in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. You've probably heard that story before. This is now uh, Exodus. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So like I said, this is the magnificent story of Joseph. Genesis 37 through 50, and then we start into uh, Exodus, which is 400 years after Joseph, and we get introduced to Moses. So again, here's what Stephen is saying. God's people started well before the temple and the law. He's saying, look at all the stuff that happened before the temple and the law ever became a thing. God has always been with his people, even when there wasn't a building or a law or a nation. What does it say in Genesis 37 through 50 about Joseph over and over and over and over again? The Lord was with Joseph. He had no law. He had no building. He had no nation. But the Lord was with Joseph. God's people didn't listen well to Joseph or to Moses. This is the next thing Stephen's going to do. They didn't listen to Joseph. His brothers rejected him. They didn't listen to Moses. They were constantly rejecting Moses. And now you're rejecting Jesus. So you can see the flow of Stephen's argument here. And consider verse 22. God uses Moses. He's a Hebrew. And he uses Moses even though he was educated, here you go, in a secular setting. 
So he's reminding them that God works the way he wants to work through his people, no matter what the circumstances are. He works through us the way he works through us. You look at verses 23 through 29. When he was 40 years old, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons, and he was a shepherd for 40 years. So so, uh, understand, they are rejecting Moses at this point, and Stephen is continuing the story of Moses and helping us to see that there was a preparation time even in his rejection, for Moses to become called to do what God is going to call him to do when he's 80. Some of you are like, you know, I'm done. God's done with me. No. He called Moses when he was 80. You're not done until you've taken your last breath. How's that for a cheery thought on Sunday morning, all right? Okay. So Jesus spent his 30 years, his first 30 years preparing for his ministry. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness preparing for his ministry. Look at 30 through 34. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the the voice of the Lord. "I I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This is just a little aside, but understand, God's people had been suffering for 400 years. Listen, I don't suffer well, I get this. I want my suffering to end five minutes after it starts, and even that's a little bit late for me. These people suffered. There were generations of Israelites, uh, of, of God's people, who suffered and never saw relief because God was waiting. That doesn't sound like a perfect plan, but it is. And, and so he's saying, I'm going to send you to Egypt, Moses, at the age of 80, as the savior and redeemer of my people out of Egypt. After 400 years, and after you've had to be prepared for 40 years, now I'm sending you. And it continues the point that Stephen is making. Just as many rejected Moses, you're now rejecting Jesus as God's anointed, sent for your salvation and redemption. Moses gets them organized and and has them leave, but they continue to reject Moses time and time again. So here's verses 35 through 43. This Moses... Whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in all the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but, they, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying, Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, who led us out of this land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He just went up on the mountain for a couple days for crying out loud, okay? And they, made a, a, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Listen, listen, it's so easy for us to look at them and go, they made this golden calf and they bowed down to this calf and were sacrificing to this golden calf, this inanimate object. What a bunch of idiots. And then we bow down to our wealth, to our status, to our careers, to our worldly wisdom. We bow down to our, our buildings and our achievements. It's not that they're bad things, but we bow down to them and we worship them. And here you go, we sacrifice for them, thinking that somehow they are going to save us. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. This is Isaiah. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Moloch is the Canaanite sun god, and Raphan is the Egyptian god of the planets, and they're worshiping these gods not the one true God. So you see the parallel, I hope. Moses sent you your ruler and your redeemer, and you rejected him. Stephen's big idea is this. I can prove through your history and through your law that you revere that you are guilty of rejection upon rejection upon rejection upon rejection. Moses' work was 40 years. Jesus is three Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. God said, this is my anointed. This is my prophet about Moses. And the people turned away to Egypt into their old ways. They wished that they could go back into slavery just so that they could eat a cucumber or an onion again. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Yet the people turned away from him to their own ways. It's the same thing. The same pattern over and over and over. So you see the argument Stephen makes. You, 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 you people of God, you have a history of rejecting the plan and purpose and profit of God. You prefer your ways to God's ways. You prefer your wisdom to God's wisdom. You prefer, here you go, yourself to God's king, to God's savior. And verses 42 and 43 remind the people of God that their stubbornness results in God's rejection and discipline. That's the great Babylonian exile. And their exile today will be that they're left out of God's new covenant and grace. They turn away from God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, you keep turning away from God enough, God's going to take his hands off of you and, and, and let you serve your own devices. This is about God's grace. Why would people reject grace? Why would people reject the sacrifice of one that can save another? Jesus did it all. He did all the work. 
He suffered all the pain. He even says on the cross, it is finished. Why would we reject that for a moral code that no one can live up to? Even the moral code that you place in your own life. I can live up to this. I came up with this moral code. You ever noticed how you adjust your moral code week after week after week as you can't live up to it? Why do we fool ourselves today with our own self-righteousness, our own morality, and our own attempts at peace when God offers it to us in Jesus? Free. It wasn't cheap. Jesus had to go to the cross, but it's free for us. Why? Human beings have always made this mistake because we're corrupted by sin. And Stephen is simply pointing it out. In the book of Proverbs, it says there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to destruction. So look at 44 through 50. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. In other words, to build the temple. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. This is Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen is saying, this temple that you value so much, it's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And it wasn't built for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. God doesn't live in a temple. By the way, God doesn't live at 3330 East Camelback either. I hope you know that. He's here, but he doesn't live here. Okay? He's everywhere. He's in your heart. He's filling you with his spirit. So we need to quit worshiping artifacts. What they were worshiping, and Stephen's pointing this out, is artifacts. The temple was an artifact. The law was an artifact. We need to quit worshiping artifacts and just come to Jesus. The temple is not the core of Judaism. And even Isaiah said this 700 years earlier. Isaiah said this. Salvation is not in a building, but in the creator God who died on a cross and is now resurrected and sitting at the right hand of God and waiting to come again. That's the promise. And for us, we need to quit worshiping our false gods, whatever they are, the false god of religion, of thinking that we can do it, the false god of religious trappings, the false god of wealth, the false god of power and status, the false god of politics. We've talked about that. And we need to come to Jesus. And those are not necessarily bad things, again. But they're not ultimate things. Listen, those of you who are married, let me just say this. I I was at a marriage conference this last, or leading a marriage retreat this last week, so it's on my mind. Those, Those of you who are married, you want your spouse to meet all of your needs? Here's a newsflash for you. They can't. They can't meet all of your needs. You need to understand that if you're taking your spouse and expecting them to do what only God can do, you've made your spouse a false god. And you may not even like your spouse that much. I get that. And part of the reason you don't is because you're mad at them because they haven't lived up to your expectation of them. 
I think this is kind of hitting home with a few of you. Let me go on, all right? <laughs> okay. You've made your spouse an idol, and you've set them up for failure. Do you understand that? When you make your spouse an idol, you set them up for failure. Your spouse isn't a savior, but neither is your job, neither is your status, neither is your cause. I know so many people who have placed their faith in the cause that they are committed to, whatever that cause is. And they worship at the altar of that cause. It's probably a very good cause, but you won't find your salvation there. Your power, your assets. This is why this stuff, these false gods, ultimately disappoint. And, you're, and I know some of you, like, you know, cynically, I know, I'm a cynic, so I know how you think. Okay, so, you know, so you're telling me my spouse is disappointing. You admit that. <laughs> you're disappointing, too. <laughs> we all are. We all are. We can't live up to any of these expectations. Why do we expect others to? When we ask the things of this world to do what only God can do, we will get frustrated. Are you frustrated? Instead, we should enjoy these things for what they are. God's given us these things as great gifts. We want them to do something else, and then we don't even enjoy them. So, Stephen gets, at this point, very frustrated with the people he's speaking to. Here you go. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen can't help himself anymore. Uh, Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and resisting the Holy Spirit. That's all language that's found in the, Holy, in the Old Testament when God is telling his people that they're turning away from him. God uses these very same words in the Old Testament to his people. And Stephen's laid out the evidence. He's saying, I'm not the false teacher. You are. He turns the tables on the religious people. He turns the accusation onto the accusers. Stephen's saying, you say that you're all about Moses, but you're really not all about Moses, and I just use Moses to prove it. I just use the text about Moses to prove it. And he's also saying, what is wrong with you? Can't you see this? You're making the same mistake that your ancestors made. Here you go. It's the person today who says, I'm just going to live for me. And then their life is disaster after disaster after disaster after disaster, and their, their answer to that is, well, I just need to press into me even more. We never learn. We never learn. Look at verses 54 through 60. So now we're into what Ben read. Now when the religious council and the rest of the Jews who were there heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. And they were stoning Stephen. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. A few weeks ago, just a little detour, a few weeks ago, 
Um, I, I talked a little bit about the idol of, of politics. Remember that? Some of you are like, yeah, sure. I re- yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and, and I said, you know, it's better to be engaged than enraged. Okay. And here we have this word enraged. So right after my sermon, the staff made this t-shirt for me. Some of you are really nervous right now. It's okay. I have a shirt on. They made this t-shirt. I don't know if you can see it. They made this t-shirt for me. Engaged, not enraged. So there you go. All right. Yeah. yeah very nice. the religious leaders didn't respond well to Stephen, just like you didn't respond well to my shirt, okay? So, now, Stephen may have intended to say more, but they've decided, the the people there decided, we're not going to wait for the niceties of a trial. We're done with him, okay? And so they dug deeper into their status quo rather than listening to them, and they end the hearing abruptly with the execution of Stephen. They covered their ears and rushed him. Who covers their ears like that and goes, la, 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 la? <laughs> Little children, right? Okay, the only adult I've ever seen do that was Eddie, Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop when his friend Jeffrey was talking to him, la, la, la. I like to work Eddie Murphy into sermons as much as possible. <laughs> and the best part of this is here's what, Je- here's what Stephen learned from Jesus. Forgive them of this. You imagine that? I cannot imagine being built, beat up by an unruly crowd and standing there going, eh, forgive them. I just can't imagine that. And of course, Saul, or Paul, is introduced. Look at those last three verses. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's quite a story. And you can see how we needed to have all of this together in one unit. And so we see that the relative restraint of the perps, the professional religious people in Jerusalem, has now been lifted. There's a total frontal attack on the church now. And so we have what's called the diaspora of the church. The church now gets distributed outside of Jerusalem, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is now, be, is now coming true. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Luke further introduces Saul, or Paul, as he does with many others. He, and he's doing this to set, set up the reader of this text to understand how radical Saul's conversion to Jesus was. He's killing Christians and committing them to prison, and he's going to become a Christian. All right, here you go. Three little takeaways. There's my, there's my alarm. I'm supposed to be done now. Um, <laughs> Three, little, three takeaways. I, I could have had ten. I'm saving you the, the expense of seven. Here you go. Number one. And I get this out of verse 48. Why was the temple so important to these people? And the reason is because it's one of the ways that we use to control God. Now, we can't control God, but we think we can when we commit him to a building. If God resides in that building, we've got him under control. It's part of our idol worship. Israel had a long history of turning away from God and worshiping idols, and of course, so do we. But chasing false gods is not as simple as just worshiping other stuff. We also have to do something with God to justify the fact that we're worshiping other stuff. It's very psychological. It's not just turning to other things. We have to do something with God. 
and I'm indebted to the great old preacher Charles Spurgeon for this. He came up with this, not me. But he says, whenever we engage in idolatry, here's what we do with God. Four things. Number one, we localize God. We localize him. We contain him. We put him where we want him to be so that we can control him. We put him in a temple or in a church building. Then we don't have to deal with him outside of the building. The second thing we do is we domesticate God. We tame him. And we say, you need to conform to us. We treat him like a dog. Sit. Roll over. The third thing we do is we alienate God. We begin to blame him when things go bad. Even though we have him under control, supposedly, we start blaming him. We make him responsible for everything we think is wrong with our lives and in the world. Look at the world, God. You're screwed it up. I think we might have had something to do with that. But we are never to blame. We alienate God, and then we dethrone him. Number four, we dethrone him. We shame him. We demote him. We minimize him. And we make him subservient to us if we even let him exist. Here's Spurgeon's quote, and I love this quote. Man is content to allow God to be anywhere except on his throne. We must do these things psychologically in order to justify the worship of our false gods. That's what we do. It's never just about worshiping something else. It has to be done in conjunction with delegitimizing the one true God. This is why it was so hard for them to accept Jesus. They worship their false gods. And, and, and it's the same reason we had a hard time fully accepting Jesus, because we want control. Yeah, I got Jesus, but I'm still in control of this stuff over here. Uh, no. He's Lord over all. Here's a question I just want you to consider. What are the cultural idols today of which you and I are drinking deeply? And I'm not talking to those of you that don't know Jesus. I'm talking to those of us who do know Jesus. What are the cultural idols that we're just sitting around at the fountain drinking them up? We need to recognize that. Here's number two. Those who are forgiven much will forgive much. Stephen knew how much he was forgiven. There's a parable in Matthew 18. Let me just read it to you because it pretty much speaks for, it, for itself. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, understand the context here. The, uh, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, were teaching that God says you need, to, um, you need to forgive your brother or your sister when they sin against you three times. After the third time, you don't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter's coming to Jesus saying, I'm going to forgive my brother seven times. Look at me. Aren't I pious? Aren't I something? I'll go as high as seven before I don't give him any more chances. And what does Jesus say? He said, I do not say to you seven times but 70 times 7. That's, that's, one, that's a way of saying infinite. Okay? And then he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I did the math on this one time, and it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had to make payment. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That would be three months wages. It's not hundreds of millions of dollars. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused him. Uh, he refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And, you should, you, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Yikes. I don't like teaching that or reading it because I'm, I'm not saying this about you. I'm saying, I, I don't know. That's frightening to me. How good are we at forgiving? At, at forgiving. And really the key is understanding how much we've been forgiven. Stephen understood how much he had been forgiven. And that's why he was able to say, as he was being killed, forgive them. Forgive them. I want that kind of forgiveness. And I think the only way we can achieve it is to really know who Jesus is more and more and more. And then the last one. You look at verses 1 through 3 of, you, of chapter 8. The gospel is good news, but there's always going to be bad news first. That's just the way it works. Why do you need good news if there isn't bad news? Look at the horrible stuff that's now happening. The church is being persecuted and attacked. People are being dragged off to prison and executed. Now think about how God redeems it. He ends up with churches everywhere all over the known world. That persecution, that bad news, led to people hearing the good news, and it led to people being redeemed, and it led to the salvation of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, and the institution of his ministry. So I want to end today by asking you this question. What is it that God has mangled in your life or in my life? What is it that God has mangled in our lives that we are interpreting as horrible that maybe needs to be seen through the eyes of redemption? There were Christians in that church there that were saying, why is God doing this to us? This is horrible. And he used it for redemption. And he used it in two weeks on Easter Sunday. I guess that's three weeks from now after chapter 8. We'll see that he uses that to bring Saul, Paul, to faith in Jesus. Let me pray and we'll uh, enter our time of reflection. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth and thank you for Stephen. Thank you for his, for his words, for his wisdom, and for his forgiveness. And God, I pray that we would be able to uh, seek that same spirit upon us, that spirit of wisdom that fills us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to our time of